0: story feels very familiar. Uh, Maybe it becomes overly familiar, uh, overly sentimentalized, and it's actually really challenging to um, read it with fresh eyes. And so what I have found is I I, I tend to gravitate to one text, one uh, part of the Christmas story. I read uh, everything in Luke and uh, Matthew and John. But then when I do is I sort of land on one and I just try and listen to it and read it over and over and over again. And part of what I'm trying to do is to get past my own, um, I wouldn't call them spiritual defenses, but just trying to break through me filling in the gaps and and trying to notice things that maybe I haven't noticed before. And I challenge you guys to do that uh, last week and online. And I know some of you have been doing that. You've been sharing with me Uh, things that are new to you, fresh to you. And that's really, really encouraging. And again, if you haven't been doing that, uh, I want to strongly, strongly recommend that you do. Take Matthew chapter one and two. It takes six or seven minutes to read through them slowly. And even just Matthew's account of the Christmas story. Take some notes, read through it slowly, listen to it, um, underline. There are, we have this mental image in our head of how Christmas unfolds. And that has often comes with a lot of strength. But it's really important to actually study Scripture this time of year and not just allow those mental images to sort of dominate. Because while they might be accurate in some ways, I I think a lot of the time they can interfere with seeing maybe not the whole Christmas story, but important elements of it. So in Matthew's uh, gospel, he starts the first and second, starts the first chapter with a genealogy. And we sort of mentioned this last week that that seems incredibly boring to us, but it's incredibly important. Because it's an ancient way of saying this is an event grounded in history, in a long history, in a long story. That Matthew's gospel does not begin with once upon a time. This is not a myth. This is not a fairy tale. And so while our our eyes might glaze over, the genealogy really establishes this as an event in human history. Then we have the birth of Jesus, much more through the uh, angle of how Joseph is given that news and what he has to grapple with as it relates to what does this mean for his um, engagement to Mary, for his life, for his reputation, for their reputation, for his own walk with God. Then in chapter 2, you've got the famous visit of the Magi, who are these non-Jewish foreign astrologers who follow the sign in the sky probably a year, year and a half after Jesus is born. And they go to Herod and they say, hey, we've seen this sign that one is born who is king of the Jews, which is not a politically correct thing to say to Herod because Herod is officially the king of the Jews. And so Herod feigns this desire, well, I'd like to worship him too. This is great news. Why don't you guys go and find him and then let me know where I can find him and I will come and worship him too. And um, jealousy and rage wells up in Pharaoh's heart. Um, Mary and Joseph and the Christ child need to flee to Egypt. Herod puts out uh, an executionary edict. For all the children born in and around Bethlehem at the time where they were estimating Jesus was born and there's uh, yeah it's kind of a horrific sad tragic note in the Christmas story Mm -hmm. and then there's a return to Nazareth after Herod dies the uh, Mary and Joseph and Jesus are told in a vision that it's safe for them to return but they don't return to Bethlehem or to the city of David they return up north to a place a very small kind of um, nowhere town called Nazareth, and that's where they spend the first uh, number of decades. One of the things that um, I'm going to ask a few people to share, uh, I'm going to invite your reflection too, but I, I know there's a few people that um, wanted to, or I invited to share this morning, uh, and I hope they will, at least they shared with me, so they shared with me online, but I'm going to put them on the spot this morning to share publicly, because they were, they were good insights. And guys, you've got to grow yourself into getting comfortable talking in front of a room full of strangers. Um, <laughs> one of the things that, um, and I'll start with this. Um, one of the things that to me is really hopeful about the Christmas story is that when you read it, when you steepen it, when you understand that God has been silent towards his people for 400 years or hasn't been a prophet, and in those 400 years, the... Pagan enemies of God, uh, Persian, Babylon, and now Rome, have overtaken and occupied and installed violence and economic and physical oppression against God's people. Um, There is this, there's evidence that for not all, but for some within the Jewish community, they saw this place of stuckness, this place of being under the thumb of um, evil, corrupt, pagan rulers as being kind of inevitable that there's not going to be a rescue from this. Now, again, not all Jews. Some Jews were anxiously waiting for the Messiah. They wanted someone to come and overthrow Rome. But we also have evidence that there were powerful Jewish groups who essentially said, maybe we got the God thing wrong. Maybe we got the Messiah thing wrong. The best we can do is cozy up to Rome. The best we can do is just sort of play this game. And that group was called the Sadducees. That's a group that emerges in that 400 year period between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New. You don't read about them in the Old Testament, they come on the scene in the New. And they were a group that didn't believe in the resurrection, they didn't really believe in the supernatural, and they were the majority stakeholders in the uh, high priest when they talked about the uh, high priest that was mostly Sadducees and these were those who had said to Rome listen we're not going to make any trouble you know you're going to hear about Messiah and resurrection and how God's going to vindicate his people and overthrow you like that's they're not with us we we just want to kind of we understand Rome is in charge we understand you guys are here to stay we respect that we just want a place at the table and I think that leadership probably discouraged a lot of people in the Jewish community because essentially what they were saying is Rome is too big to be overthrown. Rome is too powerful to to have any kind of a tangible hope for anything approximating a change in our circumstances. The darkness just felt so set in, so secured that at least for some within the Jewish community, it felt like there was an inevitability to the darkness that surrounded them, that was pressing them down, that was holding them back, and that had suffocated them to the point of tremendous subjection. There's a psalm, Psalm 88, where the psalmist says to God, Darkness is my closest friend. That's how the psalm ends. The psalmist says, darkness is my closest friend. And for some people, that would have been the mood as they're moving into this, what feels like any other year. Israel is powerless against pagan enemies, powerless against violence, powerless against the exploitation. The Sadducees have said, let's give up on this dream of God doing something significant. Let's just accept the way things are and try and make the best of it by cozying up to the Roman machine. And I say that because in my notes, what I wrote down is I can say, you know, Christmas is for those for whom the darkness feels just inevitable in their life, right? Like if, if you come to this Christmas and there's a, maybe it's your entire life, maybe it's a part of your life, maybe it's on the interiority, maybe it's something to do with a relationship or a job. But if you're in a place where maybe you haven't said the words out loud, but you are kind of like, I give up. I I just, I don't actually see how God could redeem this situation, my predicament. I'm just going to sort of numb out and lock in and ride this thing out. Christmas is for you. And part of what the incarnation teaches is that there is a light that can dispel the deepest darkness. In his gospel, John says, there's a light that shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There, there, there is um, The forces of light and the forces of darkness are not equal in, in capacity and in power and authority. There is a light that can dispel the darkness and his name is Jesus. And just when there's a huge groundswell of people saying, let's just functionally give up Um, God comes God breaks in and I want you to hear pastorally if you're in a place where you are very tempted to give up maybe on, uh, on your life completely maybe in a situation I want you to not give up I want you to not believe the lie that says this darkness is here to stay this stuckness is inevitable this relational strain is never going to get better. Part of the hope and the joy of Christmas comes when we realize that there is a light that can overcome any darkness. So the, inner, the incarnation interrupts those places in our own lives and our own hearts that feel absolutely consumed with darkness. And that's a grace though, and I want people to see that in the text. Are there other things that people made notes of, were thinking through when they were reading it this week? Shoot it. I did. <laughs> but it feels more organic if I act surprised. Oh, What? Yeah, really, really important insight there, right? Again, that can be easy to miss. Herod goes to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They said, oh, the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. They have these magi who are here saying, yeah, we're here to see him. But no one from the religious establishment goes. They don't even accompany the the magi. And that's interesting to me because they have all the knowledge. They have the expertise. And a lot of their knowledge is accurate um, but it's interesting to put ourselves in their shoes and I think, why didn't they go? Do they think, well, kind of like the Sadducees, it's not going to make a difference. Even if, if, if the Messiah is here, what's, what's a Messiah going to do in the face of this kind of power? Or maybe it's just resistance. But it, but it tells us something important about our own hearts at Christmas, which is you can know the stories, you can know the Bible, you can be religiously and theologically sophisticated. You can believe the right things. That is not the same thing as pursuing Jesus. That is not the same thing as seeking God. It's not the same thing as walking with God, right? And that's sort of the juxtaposition, right? If you um, um, complement Matthew's account with Luke's, with the shepherds, you have these uneducated, theologically not sophisticated, um, probably men, but also young boys, and maybe even some young women, going in response to see Jesus and the religious elite kind of being like, meh. I mean, Herod wants them to find out, but again, not to worship the child. So there's a challenge here in the Christmas story that those who... um, Yeah, sometimes we can get so full of our own theology and... And so full of beliefs and right ideas that we can actually forget that Scripture is meant to drive us towards Jesus. Right? Jesus says that in John chapter 5. This is a criticism he's going to uh, levy against the teachers of the law and the, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the uh, theological and the religious elite. He says, you study the Scriptures diligently. Because you think that in them, you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Right? The heart of Christianity isn't getting the right beliefs, getting the right knowledge, accumulating mass um, information so you can win um, sword drills or Bible quiz prizes. Everything in the Bible is designed to lead us towards Jesus to cause us to surrender and recognize who Jesus is, and then to begin to follow Jesus. It's about a personal walk with God. And again, that's another good gut check for us to say, is that how I'm moving towards Christmas? Am I actually moving towards God? And am I allowing the scriptures to take me there? Am I allowing all these traditions to actually move me towards a personal encounter? Anyone else have an insight that they Noticed or wanted to share as it relates to uh, the text. Oh yeah, yeah, the, yeah. So the comment was, is that the the Jewish posture that they really didn't uh, just believe? I mean, there certainly are Jewish people who did. They were eager, but there is um, there's quite a indictment that God uses in these first two chapters that says the Christ child is missed by the religion, the people who should have, been, should have been the first to believe <laughs> and bringing the gifts and bringing the worship. Um, they were, in a sense, taken over by their own uh, lust for power, their own participation in worldly systems. They were comfortable, and they had a lot of advantages in life, economically, socially, that the average God-fearing Jew didn't. And so there's this um, challenge where the Jewish elite are a bit more lumped into Herod's camp where, yeah, they're not going out and trying to kill the Messiah, but none of the chief priests, I mean, it's a bit of conjecture, but if they're in the room and Herod's like, if there's any kind of a plot or they get any sense, of, they're not saying like, hey, what's, what's the plan here? Like, they're not jumping in to seek out the Messiah to celebrate. There is this indifference. Anything else you notice about the story? I'll give credit to Marlene. Marlene sent me this early in the week. and I thought it was great. She goes, you know, what I realized this Christmas when I read through it all is like nothing goes according to plan. Like every angle of the story is just interruption and interference and chaos, right? And you think about it from Joseph's perspective alone, right? You got the engagement, massive curveball that gets thrown in the midst of the engagement, the birth environment, having to flee to Egypt. And again, this isn't like us. It's not like, oh no, we had to flee to Spokane for a few years. And we set up in hotels. I mean, these are dangerous journeys. Okay. This is great peril. And you're having to do that with um, a young, a baby. And are there going to be people to receive you in Egypt? And then how are you going to make a living? And how's it going to work? I mean, return to Nazareth, right? They're not returning back to Bethlehem. Um, They have to start investing in a new community. And that was big at that time. There was all this dislocation. And I think that's important for us to sit with because what that means is if the plans that we have for our life, whether they're very high resolution, this is the direction that I'm going, or even just a low resolution, like, yeah, this is kind of the trajectory that I'm on. When those get interrupted and when we feel like someone or something is throwing spokes in the wheel and interfering with our plans, that is actually not evidence that God is absent, that God is apathetic, or that God is even angry. It actually might mean that we're right where we need to be. I mean, that's part of the challenge of Christmas is it's Proverbs 16.9 writ large. Proverbs 16.9 says, in their hearts, humans plan their course, but it's the Lord who establishes their steps. And again, it's not wrong to plan your course. I I talk about this all the time uh, with people one-on-one. It's not wrong to have ambition. You have to have some kind of a vision for the future. But what Christmas reminds me is when the kingdom of God comes, it often means dislocation and disorientation to what I thought the how I thought the script was going to play out. And so if we find ourselves in a place where the story that we are committed to, the goals that we're committed to, even good goals. Joseph, I I just want to be a God-fearing husband. I I, I betrothed to Mary. I just want to live a simple life and honor God. And God just does a series of record scratches in that guy's life, right? And again, to his Credit, Joseph is confused. There's disorientation. There's a sense of, I don't understand what this means for me, for us, my understanding of even God. But I'm going to obey, I'm going to trust. Even though he has no frame of reference that he could draw upon to say, oh, yeah, this has been done before. God has come in human form. Yeah. I mean, his worldview doesn't even allow for the possibility that the creator God would come as a human being. And now he's being told, you will name the child Emmanuel, God with us. It's incredibly disruptive. And sometimes that will happen. And sometimes what we do is unconsciously think, well, if God's at work in my life and I'm kind of doing my part and being as obedient and faithful as I can, and then God is doing his part, what his part will look like is my path will be smooth. And so when my path isn't smooth and when it's rocky and when it's disruptive and when there's a major record scratch, I've been there. I have been tempted to be like, God, like, what are you doing? And the inference, like, why are you messing up the script? I know the way that it's supposed to go. I know the, like, this is the, look at these good goals that I have in my marriage, in my life, in my ministry. Like, I want to honor you. God's like, great, you're gonna honor me by not doing those things. You're not doing those things right now. And that's hard, right? Because we can be invested in those things. And part of the courage of both Mary and Joseph is this surrender. I've done a lot of work with people lately who have said, I'm realizing how much of the Christian life is continual surrender. It's not just a one-time moment, oh, Jesus, come in my heart, I surrender to you. You're my Lord and Savior, I receive you. Yeah, that's the capital S, surrender. But then every day, I'm really trying to build the habit in my life. When I wake up, before I leave the bed to say, God, I have plans for today. I have purposes today. I hope they're good. I give them over to you, but I surrender this day to you. I don't want to go through this day trying to force my will through, even if I think my will is aligned with yours. I want to be humble. And if there is a small divergence, to not flip the table and be like, come on. Seriously? God, look at all these good things that you're interfering with. I don't have time to meet with that person. I don't have time to slow down. No, like we need to understand that sometimes when things don't go according to our plan, our daily plan, our plan for the month, our plan for our lives, that doesn't mean that God is not involved. It actually means a lot of the time if we slow down and wait, God will show us that we're right where we're supposed to be. And to that end, I also made a note that, you know, you you see this pattern of divine protection. God is protecting Jesus. He's protecting mary and joseph but the god's divine protection does not equate to a frictionless path right at every turn they're having to confront decision points that are not easy they're not quick they're not comfortable they don't get wrapped up um, in a matter of weeks or months i mean they're in egypt for years And struggle and perseverance is still required by Mary and Joseph. It's not like, oh, because God's involved, it's just smooth sailing. Doubt and confusion and wrestling with the less than ideal. God, I don't understand because I thought at this point in my life, this is what my life should look like. Or if you were good, this is where I would be because that would be the evidence of your blessing. And now I'm over here, right? We can't equate, we have to be very careful not to equate difficult circumstances with God's absence or anger or apathy. God is often using difficulties, using interruptions, using relocations, using threats to the picture of what we think has to be or should be in order to do something bigger in and through our lives. Can I get an amen? Amen. It's a hard amen, right? It can stick in your throat, but I think we kind of know it's true. God's sovereign plan very rarely rolls out smoothly. And when the kingdom comes, again, it means disorientation and dislocation. Uh, I want to end. Sorry, any more observations? Before I end, is there anything else that someone either noticed or want to make a comment on? Benga. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's it awesome. There's so many angles there. That's right. That's right. Yep. Yep. Yeah, you, un- you understand where Joseph would have been justified to say, hey, this actually isn't my responsibility. Technically, it's not, right? And the angel says, no, you will marry, Mary, and this will be your son. And in the ancient world, adoption was treated as a blood relative. Um, So this was a major, major um, command that is going to change Joseph's status and um, social status for, for the duration of his life. And so, yeah, there's this amazing theme of, are we open to receiving responsibility from God when in our own minds we're able to say, that's not really mine to do. God might call us to do something, to take a responsibility for something or someone, right? And that's certainly this through line in the New Testament around adoption and why adoption's always been seen as a, a really powerful Christian virtue because it mirrors God's adoption of us into his family because of what Jesus has done. But then there's all these other stories like Joseph, where Joseph takes in Jesus, even though he's not related to him by blood, but there's this commitment to love and honor and serve him. Let me, uh, let me close with an observation that ties into something I said last week, but it's really, really uh, interesting. And I think it's, it's one of the evidences that the Gospel of Matthew is not, um, it's, it's actually a valid historical account. Sometimes you get these details on stories that actually um, really push back against the idea that while these are collections of texts that get manipulated later and try and um, organize information such that uh, jesus was probably a great person or a great prophet but then they get, he, it gets exaggerated and amplified and, and all of a sudden these stories about miracles and all, all this stuff is happening and, and the underlying presumption is that the the writers or compilers of this material were tactically including and not including certain information and lying with good intentions lying in order to have people say, wow, this is amazing. Well, let me show you one reason why I think, at least in Matthew chapter two, you can make a good case where that that didn't happen with these texts. The only group in Matthew one and two, it's the only group, the only group that has the correct understanding and the correct response to Jesus are who? No, in Matthew one and two. Nope. Who has the most immediate, they know who Jesus is and they have the right response. It's the Magi, non-Jewish, foreign astrologers. Now, if I'm writing a book about how Jesus has come to save the Jewish people, I'm probably not going to include a detail like pagan, foreign, non-Jewish astrologers were the people that were like, oh, here's your king and we brought gifts, and we're going to worship them. That is a very strange detail. There's lots of ways, and you see this again and again in the Gospels, and the Old Testament too, actually, that there's the inclusion of these, um the, the, the wrong people are identifying God's working. Joseph's confused. Uh, Mary has to ponder it. She can't make heads or tails of it. The shepherds are excited. The wise men understand. Here is one born king of the Jews, and we've come to worship him. They bring their gifts to Jesus. This is a strong indicator that these stories were not <laughs> made up later because the Magi come out looking like the best out of everyone in these opening chapters. And then in verse 12, I love this. I've, I've, written about this uh, years before, but I came back to it this year. You notice in verse 12 what it says about the Magi? It says they were warned by Herod in a dream not to go back, warned by an angel in the dream not to go back to Herod after they found the Christ child. And then it says, so they returned to their country by another route. And I love that at sort of the symbolic or metaphorical level. Because the people who saw Jesus most clearly weren't able to go back to their home, into their homeland, into their life the same way. Right? They had to go back a different route. And I think that speaks to the power of Christmas. When you actually encounter Jesus, when, you, when God gives you grace to see, maybe for the first time, past the sentimentality and the, the iconography, like this is the son of God, come in human form to be a sacrifice for me. He is the world's true king. And he is the one that I'm supposed to devote myself to. He's the center around which I'm supposed to build my life. He's the foundation that is the only foundation strong enough to sustain me both in this life and in the life to come. That you can't go back to your life by the same route. You just can't re-engage on December 26th the same way. Something shifts in you. Maybe not all at once. But if you encounter Jesus, you will not be able to return to your life as is. There's going to need to be a reckoning with the realization that the Son of God has come to bring grace and truth into your life, has come to seek and save you, Christmas is not just a nice idea. It will actually force upon you if you let it in, the totality of it, it will force a renovation of the heart. It will force you to bring your gifts, your treasures, those things that you hold most dear to Jesus and say, this is yours, I am yours. I have worship at the altar of false gods And I'm leaving those behind, and now I'm going to figure out what it means to worship you. Jesus is the earth's true king, right? We sang that. Let earth receive her king. Are you prepared to receive Jesus as your king this Christmas? He is the center, He is the point, He is the source. Do not miss the gift. Let's pray. God, as we sing this final song,